We are looking at the mothers of Jesus, right? We've been doing that, going through that through this season of Advent uh, from the genealogy of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 1. And so it's probably time that we actually like read and look at that genealogy a little bit, so we're going to do that today. Um, we've already noted uh, some really interesting things, that, the, it's, that it's an interesting thing that Matthew would begin his gospel account this way, right? He, rather than leading off with the star, the shepherds, the birth of Jesus, and the birth narrative, he chooses to lead off with the long list of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, which will be entertaining for you all to watch me read in a few moments, uh, right? Uh, to, you know, that, that's what he goes with. I mean, it's like, you know, um, I've, you know, taken classes on, on writing in, in, in my past, and, I, you know, obviously I've tried to read and learn as much as I can about preaching, and one of the big things that, all those kind of things it talks about is like the introduction, right? You want to grab people's attention. I'm probably failing to do that right here today. But, um, <laughs> but you want to grab people's attention. You want to like really like give them a reason why they want to keep reading, why they want to keep listening and all that. And, and here's Matthew's approach. So-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. So like he's got to have a reason for this. He's got to have a reason for that. Uh, and if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've mentioned that, that genealogies in this day were, were a lot like what our resumes are for us today. In other words, what Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to show us something about who Jesus is with this genealogy. Uh, now, pretty much any of us, when we're putting a resume together, what do you do? Like, you want to put your best self forward. Like, if you want the job that you're trying to, like, make a resume for it. Like you're going to put your best, so you want the best references on that resume. Like you want the people who are going to say the nicest, greatest things about you. Uh, the folks that you're like a little bit uncertain about, it's like, well, put them down at the bottom of the list, you know, maybe, or some of us might, you know, kind of leave them off. Um, you know, just, you know, we, you, you kind of put your best foot forward in that. Um, you, you share the experience and the education that you have that's going to help you look qualified and equipped for whatever it is that you are seeking. But that's not what Matthew does. It's, that's actually the opposite of what Matthew does in this genealogy in, in many ways. He, he highlights. He highlights the people and the stories that, that most people would want to keep hidden. Like, these are not the stories in my family tree that, like, you know, most of us would be like, oh, let's forget about crazy, crazy Uncle Eddie, you know, um, that guy's a wacky, let's kind of leave him out of the family tree here. But, but what, what Matthew does is he actually highlights these kind of strange stories, strange characters, kind of shady things, and, and brings them right to the forefront. And maybe none of them is more obvious than the mother of Jesus that we're going to look at today, the wife of Uriah, right? That's how Matthew names her, if you will, by not naming her in the genealogy. The wife of Uriah. She, she has a name. She actually has a name, but that's how Matthew chooses to name her in this genealogy. And here's what we've been seeing, what I hope we will continue to see today. Then in showing us these, these moral outsiders, these social, cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, even in showing us some of the most prestigious people, the most prestigious names in this genealogy, Matthew, by showing us the family that Jesus comes from, is showing us something about the family that Jesus comes for, the people that he comes to bring in, all the way in to his family. And so and that no matter who you are, the, the message is, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how good you think of yourself or how awful you think of yourself, all of us, everyone, is in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. 
everyone needs his grace. And even more, the message is through faith in Jesus, anyone, anyone can receive his grace, can receive his righteousness, can be brought all the way in. No matter how far outside you feel in Christ, you're brought all the way in when you turn from your sin and you trust in him. That's, that's the message I hope we will continue to see and kind of really grab a hold of today. So let's take a look at the genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 and verses 12 through 17. I invite you to turn there, page 807, and those Bibles on your row, and, and let's say it together. And hear from God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And after the deportation, moving on to verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word that is living and active and, and speaks into our lives and, and discerns our hearts, exposes who we are, exposes our need for you. And I pray that even in this long list of names, uh, you can speak to us today. You can show us our, our desperate need, our desperate condition apart from you, uh, and our desperate need for your grace. I pray for those of us who, who know your grace, who are, are walking with you in that, that you would continue to show us all that we have in you, all that you are, Lord Jesus, that you are the grace that is sufficient for us, that you are our ultimate rest in the midst of the trials and struggles that we face. Would you help us to, to look to you and, and rest today and find hope and grace and encouragement to live our lives for your glory it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Let me tell you uh, uh, one more thing that Matthew is doing by leading off with this genealogy instead of just going straight to the, to the birth narrative. He, he is anchoring Jesus in history. You see that? Right? He, he's anchoring the fact of Christ's birth in history. 
But this is, this is not a, a fairy tale, right? Jesus is not some metaphor. He's not some symbol. He's real. He's historical. He really came. He, he really came. He really lived. He really died and he really rose again and, and reigns eternally. He doesn't begin like he doesn't begin his gospel account with this a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He doesn't do he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. No, he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is no fairy tale. This is no movie. This is no feel good moment. And just to kind of encourage you, give you a little lighthearted feelings this time of year when you're like stressed for finals and, and you're, you know, the bank account's running empty because you're trying to buy everybody Christmas presents that they don't need and all that kind of stuff, right? No, he, he, he anchors this in history. He's saying truth became fact, right? The promise became reality. Jesus is real, and all of this happened. That's, that's the point of this list of names. Jesus really came. He really came. Now, there are a lot of names, but there's one name in particular that stands out among the rest, and that is the name of David, right? The name of David. David, uh, not Pastor David, but the King David of Israel, right? Uh, uh, David's name is mentioned in the genealogy five times. Five different times we, we, see, we read the name David, right? More than any other name that's given in the genealogy, his name is listed. And, and that's showing us something about how significant David uh, really is, kind of in this genealogy. In, in verse 6, he's called David the king, right? right? Jesse, the father of David the king, now, there are other kings in this genealogy, but none of them are introduced to us as so-and-so, the king. It's just David, the king, right? David, the king. Other, other kings, but, but he's the only one who gets the title. Look also at verse 1, right? How, how it starts off. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? The son of David. The son of David, the son of Abraham, right? He gets top billing in this genealogy, Top billing, even over Abraham. Now, Abraham comes first historically. I mean, Abraham is the one to whom God comes and makes the promise through your descendants, I will bless all the nations of the world. Like, it makes that kind of initial covenant. It's, it's with Abraham, but yet David is mentioned first over Abraham, showing us that in, in, in historical order, Abraham comes first, but in significance, David comes first, right? David comes first. That's what we're seeing in this genealogy. Now, David is one of those names that if you were like, going to kind of make your genealogy up, this is the name you want on your genealogy. I mean, in this day, in this culture, that, that's a good name to have in your family history. I mean, that's a, that's a big name, the greatest king in Israel's history. That, that's why he's introduced in verse 6 is David the king. In Acts 13, we read about David, uh, and it says, and when he, that's God, had removed him, that's Saul, the king before David, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, God testifies and says about David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. What a name to have on your resume, on your, on your genealogy. You want to make a statement about who you are? How about I'm related to royalty? And not just any royalty, but like the royalty of our people, right? The, the king, King David himself, a, a man that God says was a man after his own heart. You want the name of David to be prominent 
If you can, if you can make it happen, like if it's there, you, you want to center that name on the genealogy. But, but Matthew does something interesting here. And he, he mentions something else about David. Actually, he mentions someone else. In contrast to the great name of David, Matthew mentions the nameless wife of Uriah. The nameless wife of Uriah. Look again with me at verse 6. He says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Hmm. So after mentioning David the king immediately in one of the great, ironic, like amazing understatements of the Bible, uh, Matthew says this, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why would he do that? Why would Matthew write that that way? If you don't know your biblical history, you know, you, you might think, well, this, this seems odd. Why wouldn't he just, like, mention, mention her name? Like, doesn't she have a name? Why don't we call her by her name? And, and after all, she does have a name. Her name's Bathsheba, right? Her name's Bathsheba. But once again here, Matthew is purposefully drawing our attention to one of those, you know, just terrible, tragic moments, chapters in Israel's history. And we're meant to remember more than the fact that David was the father of Solomon, and we're meant to, to, to remember and notice more than the fact that Bathsheba was the mother of Solomon. We're meant to remember that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. She was the wife of Uriah, which points us back to the whole situation that led to Uriah's wife becoming David's wife and eventually the mother of Solomon. So, so who's Uriah? I mean, his name's here. Who's this guy? Well, during the time when, when David was kind of, you know, running for his life from King Saul... He's out in the wilderness, uh, just a fugitive on the run. There were a, a group of men, a special group of men, who, who went out with David into the wilderness, who, who devoted themselves to David, who, who offered their lives to protect David's life, who, who laid everything on the line. I mean, they came around him to protect him. And they were called David's mighty men, right? What a title, the mighty men. Uh, these heroic men, right, they risked everything for David. And we, we read in Second Samuel that Uriah was one of them. Right? Uriah is one of these men who devoted himself to David. Was willing to risk his own life to save the life uh, of David. And yet, years later, we, we read in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's become king. Um, and we read about the tragic narrative of, of David and Bathsheba. The wife of Uriah. Right? We're told right at the beginning of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel that it's the time when kings go out to war. And yet here's the king, and he's, he sent someone else to do his job. He stayed back at home. And he's walking on the roof of his house, and he spots this woman. Right? He, he looks upon Bathsheba while she's bathing from the roof of his house, and he desires her. He, he wants her. He sleeps with her. And he has an affair with her. And, and then in an effort to kind of cover up his sin, kind of the result of his sin, he, he plans and, and conspires to have Uriah killed, this man who devoted himself to David, to protecting his life. David, in an effort to cover up his own you know, moral failure, has him killed, has him killed. That's what happened, right? And he brings Bathsheba in. She becomes his wife. Um, and eventually, one of their children was Solomon, through whom Jesus is descended. 
And this is why Matthew leaves out her name. He wants us to remember that about David. He wants us to remember uh, about this relationship and how this came to be. That's why he calls her the wife of Uriah. He's not sliding Bathsheba. He's not trying to insult her. He's slamming David. I mean, he's just like, let's remember what this guy did. Let's remember something about his sin. He's highlighting like this this dysfunction that could have appeared on like an episode of Maury Povich or Jerry Springer, right? Like this dysfunctional family. And he's saying, out of this, like even this man who seems like the most prominent name on the list, King David, this great man of faith that we celebrate in the scriptures. He said, even that guy, even that guy is deeply flawed and dysfunctional. And out of this deeply flawed man, the Messiah came. The Messiah came. Think about what we've seen so far in, in, in looking at this genealogy and the, the, the mothers of Jesus here in, in this. We, we see moral outsiders, right? We, we've seen those who've been involved with deception and incest, uh, pretty, uh, pretty morally outside the scope of what's acceptable. Uh, we didn't get to look too deeply into Rahab's story, but if we, we read about Rahab, if you know about Rahab, she was a prostitute. Right, moral outsiders. Uh, and, and here we have people committing adultery and, and having people killed. Um, moral outsiders. We, we've seen cultural and racial outsiders in, in this genealogy. Destitute widows without hope. Without hope apart from God. Canaanites and Moabites, right? People who, but by the law of Moses, were excluded from God's presence, excluded from entering into the temple. But yet here are these racial outsiders part of the family tree of Jesus. And here we're reminded that even the most prominent names, even the most prominent names on this genealogy, men like Judah and David, they were moral failures themselves. So what does this show us? Well, it shows us that Jesus identifies with all of the outsiders. Right? Jesus comes and he puts himself outside. He, he, he lets himself be marginalized for the sake of all of the outsiders, the moral outsiders, the, the cultural, social, racial outsiders, he puts himself on the line for all of them, that they all might be brought in through him, all the way in, into the family of God. He, he puts himself out there that we might see that the grace of Jesus can cover your sin, any sin, any sin. And unite you to Christ himself, to God himself. Jesus comes to us with the invitation of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, which reads, Come, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He comes to, to take it all away to take our sin and to give us his perfection, his righteousness, to clothe us, that we would be as clean as Jesus. He comes to take our sin and infect us with his holiness and grace and mercy. And just let it spread. Just let it spread from within that it would take over our lives and transform us from the inside out. But look at what else this is showing us. Here's King David. King David, right? A man that by the world standards was an insider of insiders. I mean, first off, in a patriarchal society, he's a man, not a woman. He's an insider. 
as far as uh, the racial tensions of the culture in which we're talking about. He's a Jew, and he's not a Gentile. Uh, he's of he's the right people here. Uh, he, he's royalty. He's rich. He's not poor. I mean, he's the wealthiest dude of his day, probably. You know, I mean, he's, he's the king. And what, yet, what is Matthew saying about David? That David, he too, only gets into God's family by God's grace. Not by any of his credentials, not by any of the things that he has, any of his accomplishments. It's only by God's grace that, that David can, can get in. Look at David's sin. I mean, his sin, adultery and murder, I mean, that's worse than any of the women in the genealogy that we have been walking through week by week. I mean, he commits, he has murder committed, he, he commits adultery. And yet, the Bible calls him a man after God's heart, and his faith is celebrated throughout the scriptures. I want you to understand, there's, there's not good people and bad people, and the good people get in, and the bad people are left out. The truth of what the scriptures teach us is that there are bad people, and there's Jesus, right? There are bad people, and there is Jesus, and no one gets in but by the grace of Jesus. No one is, is in except through, through faith in Christ, through receiving his righteousness as a gift and putting your hope in him. But here's the other message. Anyone who would turn from their sin, who would turn and leave their life of sin and, and look to Jesus and cling to Jesus in faith and trust and hope, anyone can be brought all the way in. doesn't matter how inside or outside you are by the world's standards. Anyone can turn from your sin and trust in Christ and be brought all the way in. It's only faith in him that can rescue you. I love what Tim Keller writes in his book, Hidden Christmas. He says, there, there is no one then, not even the greatest human being who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ, and there is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus, Jesus Christ, if there is repentance and faith. And Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. That's the great and glorious truth of the gospel that, that Matthew is, is trying to show us with, with his mention of this nameless wife of Uriah. But there's, there, there are more deep riches here, more deep riches lurking beneath the surface of this genealogy because we also see that Jesus is the seventh seven. What does that mean, right? He's the seventh seven. What, like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? He's the seventh seven. What, what does that even mean? Well, at the end of genealogy, Matthew makes much of kind of counting up the numbers of the gen- generations that are present here. Uh, look at verse 17. Read that with me again. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to, Christ, to the Christ, 14 generations. Um, Right? So he's breaking down this genealogy into three sets of 14 generations. Uh, and there has to be some significance. Like, why bother counting up the numbers here? What's the point of that? Like, why do we need to know that? And I'm no mathematician. I will go on record. But by my calculations, three sets of 14 is also equal to six sevens. Right? Six sevens. Am I right? Math people? 
Did I do that right? All right. Six sevens of generations, which, which makes uh, Jesus the seventh seven. Right. I can't take credit for this insight because uh, it, of course, comes from the Christian Yoda himself, Pastor Tim Keller, um, <laughs> right, about Jesus being the seventh seven. But do we understand that now? Are we clear on what that means? He's the seventh seven. So there's six sevens present in the, gen- the generations there. And so that means that Jesus is the start of the seventh seven, right? No? All right. It's confusing to me too. Um, in the Bible, the number seven is, is a really significant number, right? As you read through the scriptures, you see that number seven is a, a really significant number. Beginning in the book of Genesis, where we see that on the seventh day of creation, God rests from his work of creation. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, it's a day of rest. And so we, pattern after God, are supposed to observe one day of rest in our week, to, to rest from our labors, to rest and reflect and be renewed by God's grace and to reorient our hearts towards him and, and all those ways that we need to as, so we can live for him throughout the week, right? And, and glory. Glorify him. It's the Sabbath day, one day in seven, the day of rest. But there's more kind of Sabbath seven symbolism as you work your way through the Bible. Uh, in the Mosaic law, not only was the, the, the Sabbath day to be observed, but there was also a Sabbath year. Every seven years, farmers were to give their land a rest, right? And, and to not like uh, continue to sow seed and plant crops, just kind of, you know, kind of plow the land but not plant anything. And not harvest anything that happens to just kind of come up on its own. You're supposed to give the land a rest on that seventh year so that the land, the land can replenish itself with nutrients. And, and, and it was to be a, a kind of a, a representing year of rest, if you will. The seventh year. In Leviticus, Leviticus 25, we're told that the last year of the seventh period of seven years, the 49th year, was to be a year of jubilee. And and Tim Keller writes that in that year, all slaves were to be freed and all debts were to be forgiven. Uh, All all the land and all the people were to have rest from their weariness and from their burdens. The seventh seven, right? The Sabbath of Sabbath was was a foretaste of the final rest that all will have when God renews the earth. The year of Jubilee, right? The seventh seven points us to this ultimate rest that we are to have in in Christ and that we are awaiting for when when God renews all things, when he renews everything. Ultimate rest. Ultimate rest. Not a day off. Not a day to watch TV and veg or whatever like we do with our days off too much. Um, but, But ultimate rest. Ultimate peace. Ultimate freedom. Ultimate redemption. The ultimate fulfillment that, that God is going to bring to each of us in him someday. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the seventh seven. In other words, Jesus is that ultimate rest. He is what the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee, the seventh seven. He, he's that seventh seven. He's what all of that has been pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is our ultimate rest. He's the ultimate rest that we've been longing for and, and waiting for. And he will come and bring that when he returns again in glory. He will institute that in its fullness. But he represents for us even now the beginning of entering into that ultimate rest. He's the one who brings it. And some of you might be tempted to say, well, that sounds nice. What a great story. How encouraging, right? But we have to remember this is no fairy tale. 
We have to stop treating Christmas like it's a, an inspirational Hallmark movie that I will f- refuse to watch. Um, right? We, we have to stop treating Christmas like it's just like a feel-good moment. It, it's a historical fact. It's a historical fact. So don't stop short of, of grabbing hold of this. You can know ultimate rest. You can know ultimate rest. Why, how? Right? By putting your faith in Jesus. By turning and trusting in him. And let me explain how this works. When you see the grace of Jesus and you, you turn from your sin and you, you put your hope in Jesus and, and you begin to experience his grace, encounter his grace, and it begins to show you that it doesn't matter how good you've been or how terrible you've been, you're righteous in Christ, you're, you're fully accepted in this unshakable way in Jesus that nobody can ever take from you, that you're, you've been made one, you've been adopted as a son of God, a daughter of God. When you begin to understand, like it brings rest there's no longer this pressure to have to perform, to live up to, to like work so hard to get something from God because you already have it in, in fullness in Christ. You have his perfect righteousness. There's no need to work for your own like, and trying to earn and keep. But here's the beautiful thing. When you begin to rest in his grace and you begin to really experience and taste and savor the rest that he brings, it it transforms your heart and it moves you to begin to actually live for his glory in this not way of trying to get something, get God's approval, earn his, earn his keeping you in the family, but rather just this, this reflection of just gratitude and joy. And I love Jesus more than this other stuff. I want, to, I want to honor him. I want to glorify him. Resting in his grace. Jesus also frees you and gives you rest from needing to control all the circumstances of your life. I mean, this is a hard time of year for for many folks. Um, It's a stressful time of year. Um, There's the the stress and the pain of of loss that we we encounter every year when we were reminded of the loved ones who are not with us as we gather with our families and celebrate uh, Christmas and and the rest of the holidays. It's hard. Uh, you know, some of, some of you in this room, your families are falling apart. Right? There's, there's, there's things that are like mom and dad are, are, are splitting up. Um, maybe it's your marriage that's, that's going through a hard time. Uh, things with the children are not easy, right? All kinds of like family stress and pressure that is highlighted at this time of year. Uh, you know, maybe it's finances, Right? The, the bank account is running dry. Little Joey wants this great gift, and I don't, I don't have the money for it, you know? Uh, and that pressure that you, you see just kind of coming down on you. For some of you, it's your health is falling apart. Some of us, we're getting older, and our bodies, bodies start aching. Some of us, not that old. And weird things are going on with our bodies, and it can freak us out. Right? It is totally... It can totally overwhelm us with the, the circumstances of our lives that we're going through. And, and I don't want to make light of anyone's struggle, any of those, those, uh, those pains and hardships that you are facing. I'm not saying that they're not real burdens and they're not real difficulties that you are encountering. But I'm saying that you and I make for really lousy gods. We are really lousy when we try to control it. When we try to like, seek to manage all of that. Like, I got to fix it. I got to do this. I got to do that. Like, and we try to just become God of our life, and we, we just freak out in trying to seize all the control we can, 
get when the reality is we have no control over most of that. But Christmas shows us that we can trust the one true God. Christmas shows us that he keeps his promises. That he promised to send Jesus. And though there was a long wait from talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 um, to when Jesus comes. But he came. In God's perfect timing, he came. He was born in that in Bethlehem. He was laid in that manger. The angels rejoiced, saying, glory to God in the highest. The shepherds came and, and worshipped and honored him. The, the, the wise men came and worshipped and honored him. And he lived the sinless life that you and I never could. He died the death that we deserve for our sins. And he rose victorious over sin and death in the grave. And his tomb is empty. It's not a feel-good story. It's a historical fact. Go dig him up. You won't find him. Christmas reminds us that that he is a a God who keeps his word. And so, even in the midst of the craziness of our life, the hardships of our life, we can cling to him and find rest. Real rest in the midst of that. Trusting that, that he is coming back and he's setting all things right. And he will make all the sad things come untrue when he returns in glory. No matter what happens between now and then, he's good. He's faithful. And we can rest in that. One day his glory will fill the earth. And on that day, King Jesus will give us ultimate rest. The ultimate rest of perfect peace, perfect love, perfect joy for all eternity. And no matter who you are, that rest, that joy, that hope is available to you. No matter what you've done, no matter how good you think you are, there's grace for you in Jesus Christ. Don't reduce Christmas to some fairy tale. Don't let it be to you just some inspiring story, but open your eyes and your heart to the reality of it, to the truth of it, to the the fact, the historical fact that Jesus has come, that to us, Christ the Savior is born. He's broken into the world to save you, to renew you, to invite you into his rest. And all you need to do is repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and believe on Jesus. Trust in him, cling to him. As we prepare to kind of come to the Lord's table this morning, let us remember the historic truth that we are celebrating. The historic truth of all that Jesus has done for us to save us from our sins. And that it's only by his grace that we are saved. As we share in the bread and the cup, let us remember his body that was broken, his blood that was shed uh, for us. And let us rest in the hope of the manger and the cross and the empty tomb that we can rest knowing that he's returning in glory, that we have all that we need in him to sustain us through whatever we encounter. That we have all the grace that we need to cover whatever we've done in our sin to rest in him, to be renewed by his grace and mercy, to live for his glory. There are a few different stations around the room. You're invited here in just a few moments as we uh, continue to just worship and sing this morning to to go and break off a piece of the bread, dip in the cup. Uh, We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine or string. Um, if you're not a believer in Christ, this, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. And so as believers are, are coming forward and sharing in this meal, this is an opportunity for you to take Christ, 
to turn and repent and believe in Jesus, to receive his grace, to enter into his rest. Uh, we'll have some pastors and prayer responders. We're actually going to shift out here to the side here today. Uh, just maybe clear up a little room in the back of the room since we're opening this door now. So if you want prayer for anything, uh, there'll be several of us out here. We'd love to, to visit with you, to pray with you. Uh, but no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Christmas declares to us that there is grace for our sin. There's mercy for us. There's hope for our troubles. And there is rest that we can enter into. And may we all find our rest in Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this time to gather and to worship and to celebrate. Not just an inspirational tale, but a historical fact. That in love you sent your son to us. Lord Jesus, we celebrate that you came in such humble fashion and that you made yourself nothing on our behalf. That you, you, you lived a, a life and were, you offered yourself up to be marginalized, to, to suffer in our place, to, to take our sins on the cross and, and, and die in our place. And we thank you that you are risen, risen victorious over the grave. And that in you we have hope. We have rest even right now as we wait for you to return and bring the fullness of that rest. I pray for whatever's going on in the lives of the people in this room today. That we wouldn't miss what is offered at the foot of the cross. That we wouldn't miss the grace that's offered us. That we wouldn't miss the acceptance that's offered us, the, 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 the full welcome into the family of God that's offered us. That we wouldn't miss the rest, the, the freedom, the redemption that is offered us in Jesus. Would you move all of us to respond as you would have us? And may we all increasingly live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.